Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to another all-new X's for Podcast, a show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles for 301 amazing episodes. I'm Nico, and you can catch me snickton along on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. Welcome back to another Marvel Fanfare Friday, where we take a look at stories from all corners of the Marvel Universe. Today we're going to be taking a look at the balance of stories from Marvel's Legacy, number one from 2022, featuring Raven and Andre, a segment that I have just immensely loved getting an opportunity to produce and present to you guys, as well as the most recent issue of Shang-Chi, Shang-Chi number nine, which sees Marcus Toe come over to the art from Excalibur. And it is such an incredible transformation of a title that we already loved. It is amazing. But before that, I wanted to talk about a story that's kind of been stuck in my head. And when a story gets stuck in your head, that tells you that the creators really did something right in a transformatively powerful way. On Monday's Magic Monday X's for podcast way back in the 200s. I talked about Yokai by Greg Smallwood from Electra Black, White, and Blood number two. And I've, like I said, enjoyed these Black, White, and Blood specials. They've been a really interesting way to examine characters who have specific either visualizations or certain imagery we've come to expect from them. And the Electra series, like I said, really attracted me because it made sense with her color palette. And so much of Yokai told the Electra story that I loved. But beyond that, in the second story in the issue, Verit by Al Ewing and Rod Race, we got a true sense of my favorite form of Electra, the stories where she's not even there. And to sort of explain what I mean by this, many people frequently misunderstand the allure of Electra early on in her career. There was an unspoken agreement between creator Frank Miller and editor Ralph Macchio that Electra would not be used without Frank Miller's consent. This is a significant rule because it kept the character in limbo for an incredibly long period of time. After her appearances in the Electra Saga and after Frank Miller departs the title, now Frank Miller departs the title in 191 and doesn't return until Badlands and then ultimately does again return for Born Again just a few months later. So that's 219 and then like 226. But ultimately, Electra makes no appearances in the core Daredevil title for the majority of the 80s. It isn't until Marvel sort of makes a weird decision to no longer honor that agreement. Now, I'm not saying that not honoring the agreement is a weird decision, but at that time, they were still sort of soliciting work from Frank Miller, so it seems like a really odd choice. Elektra doesn't reappear in the pages of Daredevil until Daredevil Fall from Grace, and so that means there's like 150 fucking issues which she's just not in, and her only appearances are over in Elektra Assassin 1 through 8, Elektra Saga 1 through 4, and Elektra Lives Again, which, you know, is really the story where Matt Murdock shows his dick, right? So I think that when we're talking about Elektra, she does so much of her best work not being shown. And for that reason, everything about the fundamentally meta self-understanding that Verite shows indicates that these two creators so explicitly understand what makes an Elektra story as well as Elektra work. The narrative begins with a detective watching a classic film where someone says when you 
kill a man, you should be right there at his throat. A matter of respect, you know? That's the law, is it? Right? And so we get this sort of sense of... Uh, kind of a pastiche of uh, sort of a pastiche of noir faux philosophy in a way that we accept in a way that isn't either toxically masculine or inherently saccharine to the notion of dealing with murder right it's just got some tropism and we love a good trope tropes wouldn't be tropes if they didn't work you know what I mean so then we get to the body we get to the detective Stabler and Benson scene and I love how this plays out there's a lot of the framing that reminds me of Ben Templesmith exquisite work on the nine panel grid format of Fell and the way that Ben Templesmith can really fuck with your mind using nine panel grid there's an exquisiteness to this sort of six panel grid to tell a repeated story using a framework through black and white that I really appreciate it lends credence to sort of a an Alfred Hitchcock kind of sensibility now obviously there's a component of this that has to involve Electra in a meaningful way so we have to assume that she is the person responsible for this unsolvable murder from the moment that the story begins. That's not the mystery here. And understanding that with Electra, there are many foregone conclusions and the excitement is routinely getting to those foregone conclusions as opposed to building up a faux sense of suspense, right? Now, they decide to use the cameras to figure out what happened here because witnesses might lie. And in doing so, it appears as though the man's throat almost just slashes itself. Now, they try to figure out if it's a gunshot from across the room, maybe off camera, but no. It is most certainly having his throat slashed, according to the M.E. And now the detective is still playing through the experience and the classic film at the same time. And his partner, she asks, you know, what's going on with you? And he's like, you know, I've just got this thing from a film stuck in my head. And he continues to watch films. And in the course of doing so, which, again, the self-referential meta-contextual level here, he's got an idea from a film stuck in his head while we're reading a comic that is a tropism of noir films there's a level on which this is so self-referential that the cleverness just doesn't stop and i'm so amazed how much is packed into so few fucking panels right so he realizes that it's about counting the frames and he tries to pause frame by frame on the footage the security footage of the murder and he gets a red scarf and it's sort of shakespearean at this point you know he ha- we as the audience have to know he's seen the ring you know what i mean now he's only got however however many days do you have when you see that i don't remember but so he's got that many days because it's a vhs or whatever and i am so entranced by how subtly this is so played into the world of Electra without overly relying on Daredevil. Now, I'll be honest, like I said, there are some foregone conclusions, but I still want to see everybody go out and read this story because the ending is still exquisitely done and the payoff is still wonderful. And there are so many references to Fisk here. Now, one of the things that's so significant about that is Fisk is meant to operate as the boogeyman. So when we have a number of cops talking about a boogeyman, they're talking about Fisk, but Electra is like a boogeyman's boogeyman, and that is one of the layers that makes this story work so well. By putting her in this role, you're once again elevating her into the shadows, if that makes any sense. And the other thing that I thought made this so great was there was not a whole lot of Daredevil, if any at all, outside of the contextualization of the fact that Electra, Fisk, and Daredevil all share a universe. I didn't feel like this was left to rely on the strength of a male character in place 
case of Electra starring in her own show. And that's something that this whole event has gotten right so far. I've never felt that Electra was the sidekick in one of her own narratives. So I cannot recommend being a part of this whole Daredevil Electra movement that Chip Zdarsky has made so successful in the pages of Daredevil and Devil's Reign. It is a really interesting time for a guy who, you know, a Greek kid grew up, loved Electra, also really loved Daredevil. It's a big thing for me. I have the Billy Club, my upcoming Daredevil YouTube series with show contributor Tori Sheehan, where the two of us just sit down and talk about our favorite thing in the world. And that's fucking Matt Murdock having a bad day when all we want is for him to have a good day. So I'm really excited to launch that for you guys. And if you haven't taken a look at these Black, White and Blood series, give Electra a try. It's been really exciting. And for those of you that listen to this show primarily for X-Men, there is a Peter David and Greg Land story in the second issue that features a little bit of Wolverine. And I guess there's my Wolverine reference for this episode. So hopefully you guys check that out. Hopefully you dig it. You guys know I'm a big fan and I would never steal you to read anything I didn't think was cool. And speaking of things that are so cool, I could not be prouder of our coverage of Marvel Voices Legacy that we've been running with Raven and Andre. And Marvel just announced another title, My Superhero is Black, which will be from John Jennings and Angelica Roche, which will be telling stories of Marvel's black characters and creators. And just from the cover alone, what a fucking amazing looking project. And they're going to be back to talk about that. But until then, here they are talking about the balance of stories from this first issue. Now, those stories include Date Night by Jay Holtman, Julian Shaw, and Paris Elaine, The Coolest by Cody Ziegler, Larry Houston, and Holima, Legacy by Cody Ziegler, Eder Messias, and Holima, Growth by Cody Ziegler, Larry Houston, and Holima, Cross Borough Caper by Victor Laval, Karen S. Darbro of Magnus Arts, and Ian Herring, Perspective by Corey Ziegler, Sean Damien Hill, and Oren Jr. with Holima, and Responsibility by Corey Ziegler and Paris Elaine. Now, these all featured letters by the incredible VCs Ariana Mar, and this project was really such a, a pleasure to work with because one of the things in my job as an editor or a producer of a show is I go through and, you know, these recordings are much longer than what hits the air, and part of that is my job is to edit these down and to get them into a form where they fit and make sense for a listening experience and there just wasn't a second of this I cut and I was honored to get to produce this and here is an essentially unedited remainder of all of the content from Marvel Voices Legacy featuring Raven and special guest Andre we hope you guys enjoy and if you guys like what you hear don't forget you might even like what you see so come and check us out over on X's for Podcast where you can catch up with our previous episodes and keep a lookout for future coverage like the aforementioned upcoming one shot so on we go to sam wilson in date night (laughs) (laughs) which i was not expecting i was i wasn't expecting an action-packed rom-com story right (laughs) so this was unexpected but fun Mm -hmm. what makes sam interesting now is always going to be where his place is because he struggled so much with just being a sidekick for so long that when he finally got the mantle of captain america you almost felt that he was going to kind of drop under the weight of it all but this one Mm -hmm. it puts that idea on the back burner and be like hey you know i'm captain america and i still get to live Mm -hmm. i still get to have the idea 
idea that it's not such a burden, that it's fun, it's great, and it's recognizable, but I still get to be a person too. The one thing that Steve never really got a chance to do was to be a person. Right. Anybody who knows me knows that I fucking love Captain America. I absolutely adore Steve Rogers. I think Chris Evans was one of the best things to ever happen to him. But yeah, like nobody can deny that Captain America really did not get to ever really live his life Mm -hmm. on his terms until he like walked away from everything and became nomad. And, you know, it's still a lot of back and forth. But yeah, Sam, Sam is, is his own person and he's having to deal with, you know, yeah, being a B-lister. Mm-hmm. and a former sidekick and you know everybody knew him as falcon and now he's having to pick up probably one of the most honored and expected like the weight of the people's expectations mantle for captain america and not mm-hmm. only is he captain america he's a black man who mm-hmm. is captain america which means of course his own community is going to expect him to put in like 150 percent because they already know the kind of opposition we explored that notion in the falcon winter soldier show Mm -hmm. that even though he has that mantle he's going to have to work a hundred times more Mm -hmm. to prove himself which is really the story of any person of color in in this nation that you have to work harder with less (laughs) right work four times as hard to get a quarter as far god Mm -hmm. isn't that true yes it was a fun like kind of little rom-com what he's like darting after taskmaster Mm -hmm. whipping out the wings he's trying to go on a date which was weird because i'm like wait who is sam dating right now i was like did i (laughs) did i miss that he's living in harlem I was like, wait, when did he move to Harlem? It was like, it was all <laughs> different things. It was fun. I think what I did notice was how relatable he is because mm-hmm. he has gone through what he's gone through and who he is as a character. He mm-hmm. isn't looked at as a god like Steve. He's mm-hmm. looked at as a regular person who just happens to have the shield now. You know, when he was running to get to his date, everyone was like, hey, sup, Cap? Like, how do you do? Like, what's going on? Everyone was <laughs> out to talk to him. No one would have done that to Steve. Mm-mm. Everyone would have like, been like, oh my God, that's Steve Rogers. Just let's not bother because he's clearly going to like fight aliens right now. Meanwhile, right. it's like he's running down the street. <laughs> It's like well, Steve Rogers is running. Oh my God, everybody clear the path, clear the path. Yeah, like they're like, meanwhile, you've got right? this old man stopping Sam, like, hey, stop running oh through the street. God. You're supposed to do that. That's like As a old black man would do. Like, you know, you need right? to right. I'm like, oh, good, oh, good Lord. I would have been that jackass, been like, mm, sir, you need to mind your business. I got things to do. Please move. Like, yes. But I'm a little bit more flipping that way. But yeah, like he, he can't be flipping. He's got to be, you know, a representative at all times even when he does not have the full outfit on so yeah like in or out what I call that is the Obama syndrome because mm. when Obama was elected there was a undercurrent notion that he was going to be the black people's president mm-hmm. and that he was going to fix black people's problems mm-hmm. and when you are appointed to an office that large you can't pinpoint just black people's problems and I don't like that but I you have to understand that he had to be the people's problem solver Well, and he already had severe opposition when he was the people's president if he uh-huh. had tried to narrow that down and, and, and you know help put people of color especially black people on even footing that that would have not gone well at all to say the least absolutely yeah and this is why i kind of raised my eyebrows when the the older gentleman in the story says hey, you know captain america's got some else more important to be than harlem like stay here and fix these problems <laughs> why, why are you running away like right. it, it was that it's like he could not be himself without having to be reminded that you need to be here and fix these problems at home mm-hmm. absolutely and of course he goes crashing through a window and who <laughs> but who knocks past mask 
skirt the hell out. <laughs> like one punch in this gorgeous red dress with them strappy, gorgeous heels. I'm just like, damn, girl. I mean, and she was she was sitting. She was waiting. Mm-hmm. She was sitting. She, she still got her drink in her hand. And she's like, clang. By the way, you late. It's like, what the? Wow. Yeah, wow. She, she was not she was not missing that drink. She was not dropping that drink. <laughs> it was such a weird moment. It was such a weird moment. Right? And again, I don't, I don't dislike it. I just think that mm-hmm. it's one of those things where you have these really great characters and they just get thrown right. into these situations. <laughs> And but Taskmaster of like all people. Yeah, and Taskmaster of all right. people. Which I don't I don't remember Taskmaster being that easily dispatched, but I get well, it. Well, you get hit in the face with a metal arm. I mean, that is yeah. a jacked up cybernetic arm, so. Yes. But yeah, fun. no, I, I, I absolutely yeah. get what you mean. But I also, uh, my favorite thing about this is how well these characters are drawn. Mm-hmm. They keep the African-American features and yes. the African-American coloring. Holy yes. crap, everybody's yeah. got the correct coloring. Yeah. Yeah, and sometimes Marvel Marvel doesn't always check, and I think that's an editorial yeah. issue. I mean, I think yeah. it's an issue that always comes up. Like, hey, you know, so and so is not supposed to be that light, regardless of what mm. you think that light force is happening on the screen. It's still not. Mm. Supposed to be. <laughs> Mm. And from one Misty Knight and Falcon story to a Misty Knight and Luke Cage story. Yes, which I felt was a misstep. I'm like, wait, do I need two Misty Knight stories back to back? I think this Misty and Luke story could have used an extra page because yeah. it just it feels so dense and it feels dense because it had to all be on one page. Mm-hmm. But also, ugh, okay, this is not a complaint per se, but this is a, a minor question of what, why did you have to use this funky black exploitation yeah okay <laughs> thank Michael you for oh. <laughs> thank you for saying that because i was like how do i phrase this because it's, it's no i completely uh, no, i completely do that for you it was this black exploitation <laughs> character who like is clearly from the 1970s and he's and mm-hmm. then they say it like the gun she shoots literally <laughs> says the word funk <laughs> like what is happening <laughs> Thank you. And, and here's the thing. I get why it's important for Black Vernacular to reach <laughs> comics because it makes it more relatable. It makes it digestible. And also it allows us to like hear ourselves in these pages. But it was like a lot of y'alls. It's like. Oh, <laughs> a lot of funk. A lot of job. Lot of I'm just funk. like, oh, it's like, it's like 50 years too late. What the fuck? I just, yes. Oh. It's- I was like, when, but when Luke was like, "You for real right now?" I heard oh. that. It was, like, it, was, it was like my cousin had said it. <laughs> oh God! Oh, yeah, it was. Oh yeah, it, yeah, it was. Oh no! This 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 particular story, this one page, it was blackity black black. So <laughs> that is the perfect phrasing because it really was. You just like, it was. It was <laughs> wow i'm not saying they have to go to the disco after this but they might be going to a cookout and there might be chitlins involved that's all i gotta say like that's the only way you could make it blacker yeah yeah i mean how much how much more right right how much more i was like there was no one else like like no one like there's at least three black dudes on the wrecking crew you couldn't get one of them like what is this right right like mm, could could you not have used like i don't know just slightly more updated like it oh but then I mean, again I, yeah. sometimes we need that kind of like little harken back to you know some of the old things and again this this is funny to us yes because this is part of our culture yes, yeah but i think it would have made more sense if it was like one of those out of high moments where yes. you know where it was an old 
older callback to like Luke Cage and Misty when they looked like they did in like the late mm-hmm. 70s or early 80s, like when Luke had the chain and then the tiara. When he said, you two are being very unfunky right now, oh, if you could have heard my eye roll. Oh, God. Mm, <laughs> you and me both. You and me both. It was like, oh, no. <laughs> There was something off. I was like, Moses Magnum wasn't available? Where was that? Right? Right? Like, if he had just said, sweet Christmas. Like, I was waiting for it. I was was waiting waiting for it. it. Yeah, if you're going to throw it back, throw it all the way back. Right? Right? Throw it back so hard, it loops back around. Like, Jesus. It's fun for us because it is definitely a part of our culture. So we can kind of laugh. Other people would probably be completely lost and just like, I don't get it. Mm, This is, it's our culture. It's our culture and it's Uh fucking comedy. Yeah. Which brings us to somebody who's a bit more new and it's Celia Reyes in Growth, Mm -hmm. which again, another rather, it's a short story, but it's a, it's a rather powerful one because we get to see a black doctor basically. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's about, it's a story of growth. And like quite literally, as it says, it is a story of growth because it's again, finding where you fit and how you can best use your abilities. Mm Mm-hmm it was so well done and it was such it was refreshing yes considering the fact that i just thought that we were going to get a storm story i was not expecting cecilia reyes at all like i was like Mm -hmm. okay well storm and bishop is on the cover so we're probably getting a story about them so Mm -hmm. the curveball of it being cecilia was so refreshing and so welcoming oh my god yeah yes and and oh what was it the i love like i haven't i haven't i haven't seen her like hardly at all i think i've seen her once so i'm just like uh we do she's around no she's around you know she's around she pops up yeah she pops up in people's books she's not in a main title but because she's in the healing gardens you know the way the x-men are like dropping like flies and popping back up and you know she's she's there she's 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 there she just isn't like central to any story but she is Mm -hmm. as supporting character as you're gonna get so Mm -hmm. this was incredibly interesting to see her do this yeah yeah you want to see more but again like but then when you say say growth and she does a very good explanation of what she thought her powers were because her Mm -hmm. powers were introduced as being something very defensive. And mm-hmm. so when you think about characters who have defensive powers, they're not good out in the field. Yeah. And so for Absolutely. her to kind of do something different with her powers, mm-hmm. I thought that was really interesting that she could do something uniquely special with her gifts. Spectrum is up next in Legacy. Yes. And oh God. This was probably my favorite story. This was one of my favorite stories, actually. Mm-hmm. I thought it was a nice kind of reintroduction to her, yes. a very kind of quick snapshot of why she named herself that, because you never got that explanation because, you know, Monica has been changing code names like she was switching underwear. Like it was right. like every name. <laughs> different name. Different outfit, different name, different name. Different just you know. Different like, hairstyles. Mm, she looked like Holly like Berry one issue. And then she right? didn't look like Holly Berry one issue. <laughs> She's like Spectrum, Photon, Doctor yeah. Light, like my God, Captain Marvel. Like just Oh yeah, like, there were so many code names. But I think we finally got a reason why she chose this name, and I think that's long overdue. But the idea of this particular story in the legacy and what she represents to people who look like her mm-hmm. and what she inspired was important to me to read. Yeah. And I love that opening line. There is power in my name. Mm-hmm. Like, mm, I feel chills. I love it. She is absolutely a representation of so many black people, especially black women out there where you have to be everything. You mm-hmm. have to be, you know, from one to the other. Like you got to be every 
everything in between and it's just it can be mind-blowing at times but it's still you know you still are who you are and you just have to be able to kind of slide into whatever is needed and she is just uh, it makes me so happy because she's been around for quite some time Mm -hmm. and sometimes she's at the forefront a lot of times they play her in the background and i'm i'm hoping that they bring her to the forefront more especially after like things like wandavision there's an absolute need for monica rambo and i believe they're coming out with a second captain marvel so i'm really hoping that she uh makes another appearance in there she is because they re yeah they retitled the movie to the marvels because it's not just only carol that they are dealing with they're bringing monica in they also are uh, apparently bringing in novar oh and mala there as well oh yes please yeah so i definitely know that monica is going to be in that in that film that's gonna be amazing i honestly cannot wait she's also slated to be in the new thunderbolts uh team coming up i can't i can't wait to see what they do with her and i really hope they do her character justice because yeah some some characters are like high and lofty (coughs) tony stark um (laughs) and then other characters just like like in in this story she's much more a a hero who still connects with her people like Mm -hmm. she's out there she's doing the superhero thing she's kicking absolute ass and looking so good doing it Mm -hmm. but she does not forget that she influences people at the base level like people are going to want to put in for their community so she goes out of her way to make sure that her community shines just as bright and i'm like Mm -hmm. it it may like i don't do selfies often but that's amazing that like she you know she goes over to that girl and like gets a selfie with her i'm like oh my god that would be me i would be that girl i'd be like oh my god oh my god oh my god this is so awesome you're so cool like i would i would absolutely have that moment and it makes her very very human and i love it fucking love it yeah i mean i think she she did a great job here explaining that even though she's done all these amazing things she's like saved the world's countless times she's fought dragons she's fought you know all types of things at the edge of the universe when she was on the ultimate she was like but what i do is on a very small scale Mm -hmm. compared to what she believes she can do for countless others and i thought that was super important to say Mm -hmm. love it love it love it i cannot wait to see so much more from monica rambo and i just i just hope that artists and storytellers keep doing her well like they have been doing in the past so uh, yeah I'm, i'm very happy with it yeah i think she's finally i think as spectrum i think she's hit her stride as a character now yeah there was a crisis of identity there that i just didn't like like mm-hmm. i said when she was switching code names all the time and like she just really you didn't know where she fit i'm like you have this powerhouse character don't mm-hmm. fuck it up honestly i relate so hard to her on that like trying to figure out who you are where you fit what what is the best representation or brand you know for you and then just mm-hmm. slowly going you know what fuck it this is me this is who i am instead of other people dictating it she's really taking and owning this spectrum and i'm just like oh it's it's so glorious it's so lovely and i love 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 to see it because it gives her almost an extra level of agency that we really needed to see especially for black women they aren't just uh you know tools or or just hey we're gonna put you here in this position you do the thing and you know don't step outside she is her own person she has her own agency and she makes it look so damn good so good so good i mean and not to mention she was the one of the only black women to have her own solo book mm-hmm. <laughs> 
in the eighties. Like she right. was doing it. Right. She was right? doing it. She was there. She's like she she was there. She was doing it. Mm-hmm. And had been holding it down for a very long time. Moon Girl in Prospero Caper. Yes. <laughs> Which is hilarious. What were your thoughts on hilarious? I was like in the I I thought this story was so- like what in the Scooby Doo exactly. mystery? Exactly. I knew I was in for a ride with you know the the captions were like yeah so Central Park the zoo Van Cortlandt Park you know all those things that I know of because I I, I grew up in in, in mm-hmm. New York and then like you see like mm-hmm. this horse that's running and like, I think something happens to the horse but then the captions like I've never actually been to the Bronx I'm hoping it'd still be fun I was like honey it won't be mm-hmm. <laughs> no one actually chooses to go to the Bronx unless you live there <laughs> <laughs> you're like who 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 told yes. you that <laughs> I mean people do I mean Yankee who Stadium was up there yes I get it and like you know the Bronx Zoo sure <laughs> Glenn she's right she's riding a giant ass devil sore I do not know how anybody missed that like ever. Uh, yeah and it's not like that. it literally steps over the Van Cortland Park archway yes. yeah I mean and it's the idea that no one sees her doing this like <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I I love again I love Moon Girl I love Devil Dinosaur <laughs> but this was such a weird story <laughs> it was a fun time I think this was one of the ones we mm-hmm. were saying before when you prefaced it that this is these, this is one of the stories that could have had one page less in terms of yes. uh, execution because again I think that her positioning is like this evergreen girl who's like super smart one of the most intelligent people in the universe and she does something equally cool by riding around in this big freaking huge red Tyrannosaurus mm-hmm. Rex as her friend which in itself is like <laughs> like comic books the textbook like it's literally what you get from comic book I think this could have been a different I don't know I don't know if it could have been a different tone I think that this was definitely a, a story of discovery for her especially mm-hmm. given what the end result was with the other I, I, I'm not gonna say dinosaur I don't know uh, yeah Mel <laughs> Yeah, because I don't think Mel is exactly a dinosaur. Yeah, I mean, we know that that Dino is from the Savage Land, so I'm assuming so. But mm-hmm. it looks mutated, so I, I'm assuming that it, it could be something. Yes, the the Moon Girl does identify her as a dinosaur, so I'm assuming mm-hmm. yes, but we don't know what it is. But I I don't know how I feel about the the story entirely. I don't know what the point of it is. You know, I I was actually rather mm-hmm. lost on that myself. Yeah, I think one less page would have probably made the verbal exposition a little bit tighter and i think that's kind of what it needed because mm-hmm. i didn't get like a like a deep sense of why she was there until like the very end of the story and it's like oh hey how did you enjoy horseback riding and it's like well we didn't really even build on that point at all it was just devil sore tracking through the underbrush and then getting attacked and you know she's got some cute gadgets with her and like yeah yes getting attacked by the same but getting attacked by the same creature that she befriended at the end who actually was killing the horses she was there to ride. I don't get it. Right. 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 I would have been like, I at least need to ride you once just to make up for this. Like, or maybe, or you maybe kill the horse I was supposed face. to have. How about that? You attacked me the first time right? you met. Like, literally took a chunk out of, like, the devil dinosaur. 
you killed the horse and then you bit my devil dinosaur in mm -hmm. the butt like what is your major about and you're supposed to be the smart one you know all of these languages and have all of this tech on you and yet i was scared and jumpy and i just bit the largest thing that looks like it comes from the mm -hmm. savage land like yeah, yeah. no you're supposed to be you're supposed to be, be smart. smart you're not you're not yeah. or, or we can say that this yes not uh, we can probably you know say this was a cautionary tale of bad parenting because mel's did say that her parents sent her out there to have an adventure not to kill things but to have an adventure <laughs> so that clearly was an interpretation of some ideals there I, i'm i'm like who who are your parents? Because what were they thinking? You're a dinosaur and they're sending you out into the mm -hmm. human world. And you know all of human languages and yes. but they didn't teach you anything about horses or the fact that you're not supposed to bite people when you meet them. Like and here's where I think that that is actually not something that Mel's parents stated. So when you boil it down, you'd be like, peel things away. So what we're saying is that Mel's parents is more than likely also intelligent dinosaurs, got a hold of some teleport Transportation tech attached to their child, to their child away to go on these adventures, not saying what the world is going to look like, not saying, hey, you know, this is what's happening outside of the Savage Land. We're not all like, we don't mm -hmm. all look the same. You're going to find things that look like different from you. It wasn't that. Mm -hmm. And that's where it was confusing. No. I'm like, wait. <laughs> so you mean to tell me that Mel has been basically using this teleportation device just to pop up at different places, kill something, and keep moving? Right. And it's not even technology that Good. Mel understands. Uh -huh. Like, they're like, uh, it's broken. I don't know how to fix it. I'm like, what parent? Like, what in the yeah. ash catch him? Like, seriously, what parent just sends their child out? Just don't worry. Just, you know, go do whatever. It's like, mm, maybe you come back. Maybe you don't. But I'm like, how badly did you annoy your parents? Like, they were just going to send you out in the world. We're like, look it. It's funny, you'll, you'll, and and the funny thing is, is literally the it the the field that it creates, it doesn't move. It just lets the world move mm -hmm. around them. So it's not even teleporting them. They're just basically standing still and waiting for a space. I'm like, just like um, elevation changes all the time. So if that thing pops out at the wrong time, you get dropped off. You know, a, a skyscraper. You get dropped into a canyon, or like, like who who came up with this technology, and why would you give it to I a child? Know. And and how do you fix that off of a cannibal? ultra amplifier gadget like because the ultra amplifier seemed to be much more of a, a tracker not a teleporter of any sort so moon girls said she can use her device to fix mel's teleportation device. which i'm sorry <laughs> yeah. like like you you can't take the fan belt off of a freaking isetta and make it work Come on, on a big ring you're you're know now I mean? you're like, asking for logic from a comic book you can't do because <laughs> <laughs> well, if she leave. if she had had like if it had done sort of minor teleportation type stuff like oh yeah i'm tracking a teleportation signal yeah. then i would have been like okay that, that sense, makes yes. sense that you know, parts would match up a bit more but this is like i got a super sniffer in my hand it'll help you with your teleportation device like girl you're you're already asking me to suspend a lot of but disbelief we already have to. She's right, but she's <laughs> whatever riding reason. around in a, on a dinosaur the, the, the disbelief is there i know I don't know why this <laughs> is this like the end there. for me. I'm just like, no, no, I just can't. <laughs> that's where, again, we say this. That's where you draw the line. That's where you draw. <laughs> We've already been introduced to a speaking dinosaur. Oh and you're like, no, but I draw the line at like bullshit teleportation fixing. <laughs> <laughs> 
like I know it doesn't make sense. I know it doesn't make sense that that's my hangout. But that one was yeah, my hangout. Yeah, she just happened to have it in her bag as she would. <laughs> and it just it just works. I'm like, that's like bubbled gum and, and, and spit. Like, you better hope that this child is going directly back to the Savage Land to get this thing properly repaired. If not, you're going to have like, you know, a, a dinosaur in, in Miami. Or, or torn apart. Or torn wherever. apart. Because remember, Mel disclaimed, right. like, if it doesn't, it doesn't protect me, I can just be ripped to shreds. Yeah. I'm just like, oh God, no. But, you know. A dinosaur spattered across five burrows. Yeah, but Luna was like, oh well. <laughs> Let's just try it. <laughs> it's fine. You'll be fine. Go ahead. Yeah, jump on it. Like, damn, there. girl. If there was ever a Reed Richards moment, it was that moment for her. <laughs> it really was. It really, really was. Although, speaking of a Reed Richard moment, like, the parents super not effing caring or keeping a track on their child at all. Like, how was horseback riding? Like, nobody heard about dead horses before you sent your child to go horseback riding? Like, <laughs> who just sends their... Yeah, just, hey, did you have fun riding your devil dinosaur? Mm-hmm. Like, what the fuck? Like, mm-hmm. well, I mean, I don't... No, it's really the Ash Catch. Yeah, but I, I don't think they got a chance to report it. I mean, because uh, even Luna just happened to kind of overhear the cop saying that the, the horse was found injured or whatever the case may be. So I don't think that became like... But, but <laughs> as a parent, though, you would probably call the, the stable or whatever and go, hey, by the way, you know, just double checking to make sure that, you know, the writing appointment is at no, X time. Mean, no. At which point somebody at the stables would probably go, uh, yeah, we've got dead no. horses no, in no, here. No, these, are, these are New York uh, parents. They can give two fucks. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I was yeah. I was riding the subway at eight years old. No one cared. <laughs> oh, <good laughs> no. Oh, no, so oh, no one's double God. checking that she made it to the stables at Van Cortlandt Park at all. <laughs> yeah. Like fuck it, yeah. They got yeah. learn sooner if, or later. If she doesn't come home, then we'll <laughs> then we'll worry. <laughs> right. What? It's dark out. Well, I guess we should probably call to see if she's somewhere. Oh my god. Uh, the next story is called Perspective, and it's with Blue Marvel, and it is very much about the black experience. Uh-huh. <laughs> and yet, does it all within uh-huh. a page? They called me the Man of Marvel, magnificent master of mm-hmm. might, and the world's strongest. I'm like, oof, if that isn't setting the bar high and very much a, a part of Black experience, especially for Black men. Absolutely. Yeah. Like the, the, the push to be the strongest, to be the most, to be like, you know, the most extra, most powerful. Like you have to prove yourself constantly. Yes, because he, he had a laundry list of powers that he had to explain to us. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm a li- like he is literally just going through and I'm this and mm-hmm. I'm this. <laughs> and I'm this and I'm this and this and it's like damn dude that is a lot and yet I, has does he have no, his own book? he hasn't and I was really shocked that he even showed up here because he was one of those characters that was established very early on that mm-hmm. he's really really one of the most powerful beings and you know in the Marvel Universe he was retconned mm-hmm. to have been there all the time <laughs> like hey I was been here you just didn't mm-hmm. really notice me um <laughs> and I'm like yeah well that's there's, there's some, some truth, truth to that, that yeah so. um but in the sense that he has all of these powers and not on a team really I mean he was on the Ultimates for a really long time which was a great book by the way because it showcased everything and everyone about you know the people of color of that book but to show all of this strength and show all of who he is as a person and he says yeah I'm many things but really what I am is hope and inspiration Mm -hmm. to the generations to Mm -hmm. yet to come and he specifically and I know he specifically
basically saying to the generations of people who look like me, not just yes. heroes, not just oh heroes. And I, and I saw yes. that it was a very tempered way of explaining the dialogue, but I mm-hmm. still feel like it's the assumption is that it's really about my inspiration to future superheroes, but also ones that look like me. Yeah, absolutely. And I love the fact that he breaks through the clouds. He breaks through the atmosphere. You know, he, he is then featured hovering above mm-hmm. the world. Like that's a very powerful uh, use of perspective because it's a position of power, but it also means he is so singular and just part of a greater mm-hmm. whole, yes. as it were. So it's not just about him. It's about everything that he represents and everybody still on that planet. Like it, there's so much power and so much weight in each of his words. And it says so much, not only just in the words that were, were used. And by the way, I love the use of the blue boxes with the white lettering. It just, it somehow, it just works so perfectly. Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like it's his branding because it's his outfit color. So it fit. And it's, it's great because like he's literally, he doesn't even have to say a word. It's, it's almost like his internal monologue. It's that it's, oh God, I don't like, ugh, I love this story so much. And even though it's a one page, I'm usually super harsh <laughs> on one pages. <laughs> I admit that. But this was so masterfully done in both the art, in the in the words that were chosen, and the way that they were yes. featured. It's literally all about perspective and so beautifully done. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree more Just, because, ugh. again, he's <laughs> he is one of those characters that I fell in love with immediately. And not because of his mm-hmm. power set, but because of the handful of Black superheroes that were already existing in Marvel and he was a new one because they don't really create new mm-hmm. black superhero characters in Marvel like that. Oh, God, you're <laughs> so me. And even if, even when they do make a new hero, like it it's is an uphill, uphill battle. battle. And, that, and that's a, I think that's also the double-edged sword. Like you want to have new characters pop up, but we're so uh, used to dealing with the current characters, the legacy characters. And we don't give new characters a shot anymore, mm-hmm. which is which is hard and sad at the same time mm-hmm. because, you know, the world is about these new stories. And so why aren't you not willing to be open about new characters that are showing up? But like the, yeah. the uphill battle that comes with new characters is, is always seen. Well, even the uphill battle that comes with reintroducing old characters, because some people, they only read from a very limited mm-hmm. list that has a very particular representation. Yeah. And so when you're like, oh yeah, hey, about what about this character? And they're like, oh, why are you always trying to put new characters in? And they're like, no, this is not a new character. This is a character who's actually around for a long time, but you apparently <laughs> don't pay attention or you don't read, you read them. them. Yes. So how about you stop running your mouth and how about you actually take in some yes, freaking culture absolutely just, mm. absolutely and then it's it's so weird but that's like what, what's the phrase the, tell me you don't tell, tell me you're a comic you're not written no <laughs> comics it's that thing <laughs> yeah it really is tell me you don't read comic books that feature or even include characters of color but yeah like, I think me. that conversation just came up well, just that say conversation less. just came up with what was it when they relaunched She-Hulk and there are people who are like commenting like mm-hmm. why do we need a female Hulk like this is just like like oh why do we God. need the gender benefit? people are like reminding <laughs> them like she's been she's been in existence for decades like what are you people talking about <laughs> right and these are also the same people who think that that she hulk and hulk yes. are gonna hook up and it's like they are freaking related mm-hmm. they're cousins yeah. no I'm like this is oh my god they are not a quote-unquote power couple they are related yeah. they are straight up related like tell me you don't know anything about a character oh wait you just you did, just did. Yes. <laughs> 
So like when, and, and this is also goes back to that other conversation that you could have about changing of a character's race. Like mm-hmm. they introduced a new black character because, you know, they always says, why can't you just create a new black character? And then you don't read about them when they do. Right. You're not interested right. in it. Like you literally just said, hey, here's this really super strong comic book superhero, African-American. Mm-hmm. Read him. No, I don't want to. Because he's not Blade. Right. Or he's <laughs> not this person. <laughs> oh my God. Right. No, he's he's not one of the three. Panel, like, but you just said we needed to make new characters in order for you to read them so that you could be okay with us integrating uh-huh. them because you don't like it when we change one of the 99.9% of featured uh-huh. white characters and, and we've changed the one thing that literally has nothing to do with their abilities or their uh-huh. background or what they can do. Oh no, but that's that's got to be that thing. Right, okay, uh-huh. So uh, tell us that uh, you have other uh-huh. issues that you have to tell us that you have other yes. issues I yes because it. again it, it's about the the conversation and what makes people <laughs> what makes mm-hmm. people comfortable uncomfortable and the things mm-hmm. that are digestible for them and i think that in yeah. this case in me in this powerful one sheet blue marvel showed that he is here he, he's there and he he can do these really mm-hmm. great things but he just has to inspire like he said the next generation because uh, that's that's mm-hmm. really the only thing he's got right now <laughs> Right. And and luckily, the next generation is featured in uh, the very last story yes. of the book. And we get to see Spider-Man and Starling. Who I adore. And I was like, Who oh, I adore. Oh. Because you know I love me uh, a Black comeuppance <laughs> moment where they introduce Starling. And mm. they're like, wait, you have a very familiar last name. And it's like, oh, yeah, the vulture is my grandfather. They're like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> huh? Like, what? <laughs> oh, my God. I freaking love it. I I freaking love I was like, so wait. And the I was like, so wait. So, so a Spider-Man villain <laughs> has a black granddaughter? Mm-hmm. Love, love to see it. Love to mm-hmm. see it. I'm like, oh, I got it. So Sandeo did marry. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Why not, right? <laughs> well, I mean, hey, Michael Keaton played Vulture, uh-huh. and then Tom Holland and and Zendaya, like, yeah. there was a lot of hey, yeah. maybe they will. So I'm just saying, this would be this would be the evolution uh-huh. thereof. <laughs> just, I'm, I'm just, saying, I'm just saying, but I love it. I freaking love it, and I love the fact that they're like going to go and race to uh, the Baxter Building for pupusas. Yes. Yes. I love that because they didn't sacrifice the the cultural background in order to have this story. Like they kept the cultural background and I freaking love it because you don't have to be one or the other. You can be multifaceted mm-hmm. and represent multiple cultures while still being black. And that is probably one of the hardest things to explain to people at times. And honestly, I'll admit, I was one of those people that I didn't get it because I was raised super freaking white <laughs> in Southern California. I'm just saying, like, yes, I'm black, but the community that I grew up in was was um, very, very light on, on black culture. So, like, to, to finally get to see different representations of the black experience, that makes me so ridiculously happy because I'm just like, oh, I didn't mm. know this. Oh my God, yes. I love and I mean, this. It was so prevalent in just her hair, her styling, mm-hmm. her language. She had me at mm-hmm. calling Miles Mad Boring. I was like, yep. <laughs> I was like, go ahead, seal it. Let yeah. let let us know. <laughs> 
Right. Let us know. Right. I love it. Lose your pace for dinner and re-ups <laughs> on our Metro card. I'm like, oh my God, I love it. Oh my God. Like people don't always understand. There is so much like local culture packed into that uh-huh. one yep. sentence. And and then to bring up pupusas, which is which is very like a Latin thing, mm-hmm. but also one of those things that is so integral to not only black culture in New York, but also Latin culture in New York. Like they tie all the different pieces of who they are together so uh-huh. flawlessly yeah. and so wonderfully and they're still kids and they're still kids yeah and they're, and they're still, still being kids. themselves yeah right they're not like hey we got to go take down rhino or you know we've got to take down you know whichever carnage goblin thing of the week they're just like i'll race you to propuse and you refill my metro <laughs> i love it because they they still get to be kids and so often black children and black young people don't get that chance to just be dorky kid they get so much responsibility packed on their shoulders so young that i'm like i i loved i loved yeah I, I thought it was magical it, it was magical just, it was literally magic yeah yeah it was it was black joy and black excellence and just kids actually being able to have a fun mm-hmm. moment and still owning the fact that yeah you know on the way we might run into trouble so we've already got our gear on you know we're doing our superhero thing but we're also still people and that was just so fucking beautiful that they did that and i'm oh i love her i love her hair yeah i love her entire design when they introduced her I was like this is pretty amazing and how she looks because mm-hmm. a lot of times and I think we always have this conversation in other areas but like a lot of times when you look at it sometimes you say to yourself they don't know how to design by character right did you see what they did to Tempo <laughs> yes with them cornrows yes yeah corn cornrows so wide you could have planted beans and squash in between but like, again that's, that, that was the, I mean the- hello that was their default because I mean even Frenzy mm-hmm. had cornrows when we first met her and then she shaved the shit off like it's like sometimes (laughs) you don't you don't get it it. and then and then you like people wonder why it's important for black writers to to do this because they are more connected to this culture to the community to be able to put forth authenticity which Mm -hmm. is missing a lot of times and don't have that conversation right and not only does she have braids with the hair connecting it in between as it should be they got these little laid down baby hair mm-hmm. curls like that is a detail that is a freaking detail mm-hmm. like and it's there and it's there and it's represented and i fucking yes. love it yes absolutely and it, it's it's <gasps> all it's full it's it's full of life mm-hmm. and that's what i think is really really important that it is full of life she is new it's you can't mistake in her and i think this is also the importance about why uh these characters are important that allows them not to be swapped out racially because their race mm-hmm. is important to their origin. Mm-hmm. It is important to who they are as Absolutely. a character. It's important to who they are as the superhero or villain persona. Like it is ingrained in them. That's mm-hmm. why you can't ever recast Black Panther as a white man because his culture and his race ties into his superhero identity. Those things can't be swapped. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That is absolutely it. And I think that's actually a really great place to end oh, the cast. That was- <laughs> we did good. Damn, I didn't know. Of course. <laughs> Imagine if it was a full issue of just like one person. <laughs> oh my god right right like oh my god this honestly overall they did a beautiful job of this so I think they did too. 
I really hope they get more because honestly, I feel a little cheated only because when I saw mm-hmm. the cover, I saw my, my boy Night Thrasher and I thought I was going to get a Night Thrasher story and then he didn't show mm-hmm. up. <laughs> so that was a bit of a letdown because honestly, Night Thrasher means something to me of a great importance because he was the first black superhero that I saw mm-hmm. as a kid. So mm-hmm. he inspired a lot <laughs> of the things I used to do because right. I was like, I wasn't into skateboarding until I saw Night Thrasher. So like I wanted to be this vigilante <laughs> skateboarding black teenager in in Brooklyn trying to solve crimes like that's what that's what I wanted to do <laughs> oh my god I love it no I was I was also like why didn't they have silhouette oh in yeah here? no that's that a deep rabbit hole why didn't they have amazing. certain black characters there as well because we can say that right. but then we start saying well why didn't they bring up you know gentle or why didn't they bring up True. this person or why didn't they like we start to get into that rabbit hole because you have such a small handful of black characters who showcase yeah and and honestly if we were to put them all in one book you would end up with like a coffee you table would. look yes yes you, which i mean i i yeah i, no, I wouldn't mind because I you would yeah. not be mad because I mean, you could have brought in like the current power man you could have brought in white tiger you could have brought in a lot of mm-hmm. the afro-latino aspects as well like it, it wouldn't stop yeah. <laughs> hey everybody nico here one last time now this is shang chi number nine shang chi has like i keep saying it's like the surprise breakout title that we love but at this point it's such a staple of what we cover here especially on marvel fanfare fridays so we are so excited to bring marcus toe's debut on shang chi through our coverage here on x's for podcast it is always a pleasure making this show for you guys three times a week every week i can't believe that we are on episode 301 don't forget to check out magic mondays x-men x wednesdays and marvel fanfare fridays now we kind of had a weird week where there was no X deaths and X lives of Wolverine and so that maybe threw off a little bit of our coverage but the amazing thing was that this was episode 300 this past week so we got to have that awesome roundtable special and you know it's such an exciting opportunity to get to bring you guys the kind of specials that we used to have more room for before we covered so many books so so many books now (laughs) so guys enjoy this last segment until next time keep those mutant lights let those Krakoan gateways open you know there's going to be more Wolverine next week I've been Nico you guys can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's N I C O A C T I O N. And until next time, guys, we'll see ya. Hey, everybody, welcome back to Excess for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and martial artists week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm Nico, and you guys can catch me over on Twitter and Instagram, snicking along at, at Nico Action. That's N I C O A C T I O N. I'm Kyle. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82. That's D R A N T I S 82. And I'm Steven. You could find me on Twitter at Steven of Wonder and over on Facebook as an admin for the House of North Star Group. And I'm TK. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at x nate x gray x and we hope you survive this experience kind of like basically everybody in this issue so that's nice for once yes but unlike me i did not survive this issue i am here as a specter to talk to you all about my ghost self who could not handle just how phenomenal marcus toe's work was on this his first issue of shang chi shang chi number nine or legacy numbering 135 thank you very much was brought to us by gene nun yang marcus toe sunny go and VCs Travis Lanham. Now, this is the first issue that sees a new artist come on, but I need to, before we can even get to this issue, I need to kind of like... 
for a second because uh, that was the sound of me moving backward in time like a hummingbird because I am not sure I agree that this is part one of a new arc and oh. that the last issue was the conclusion of another arc. You know, it's funny. Yeah. I can I can make it work in my head. I, I was having the same thought because it literally picks up immediately after like a cliffhanger and there's a lot more to do. But I and you know, this can take us into a conversation about Marcus Toe's art. They did a few important things to change things up enough that I can kind of buy into it conceptually. The problem is you cannot pick this up as a new reader with this issue and have any satisfaction knowing what's going on. Yeah, I just thought it was a continuation of the arc, which is not a bad thing. But you definitely you have to read the full story to understand what's happening. I did think that the art was like a really beautiful transition. It was almost seamless to me. So it felt like normal, which was great. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I was expecting something that didn't follow quite as close to the previous arc. I'm not complaining because I I do feel like a lot was left over to touch on. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad that we're kind of still dealing with the same events. Um, but it, it, it kind of feels like a transitionary issue, not, not a hard start to an arc. It also makes me wonder about the nature of numbering, right? So look, legacy 135 bring it. I'm here for the legacy numbering and like Marvel is clearly making this sort of put another number on the cover but also have a legacy number running because it's fine. Who cares, right? And one of the things that that makes me think about is so Jean's story is like <laughs> Jean, right? It's I'm I'm a Lucille Bluth. Jean! <laughs> um so, you know, Jean Lin Yang's story ran five issues of the first mini, nine issues of this, plus that voices one shot. But if we really rejigger that number a little bit, think about how this is the first issue of a new arc. It's sort of like making it all the way to Talo sort of represents the end of that first 12 issue arc. It's almost like this. This is a weirdly timed reset. It's it kind of reminds me of how Stargate SG-1 had this thing for doing like three part season finales with a four part season premiere. Yeah, and it's definitely not a seven-part arc, but like at some point things started and stopped. And I wonder how you guys feel. Does this actually feel like a new, at least, moment for Shang Chi, even if it's a continuation of the arc? We've made it to Talo. How does it feel dynamically changing the setting of the story for this new arc? So the problem for me was we kind of really didn't make it to Talo. We got the introduction that we were going there in the previous arc, and this one really is kind of a connector because yes we get glimpses but Shang-Chi doesn't make it there yet and we don't have that he steps through the portal into this beautiful extra dimensional mystical city that is a huge part of his heritage and takes in the wonder of it and we know now that this is an important setting we get hints and that's great there's nothing wrong with it but in terms of if we wanted to really see that hard transition into a new story arc where maybe you might even think about picking it up right from here even if you were missing background like you got something to start with this is not that issue this is really a connector issue that slowly transitions us into the fact that we'll be going to talo but we still don't have that moment that sets us there for the future kyle you know i think you in many ways are at an unfair disadvantage by virtue of not having had a chance to engage with the shang chi film yet so i feel as though some of this story is 
is designed for a casual Marvel Universe fan to step into Shang-Chi with a vague idea of what's going on in the movies. Like, I sometimes think about, man, this person might have gone to have seen Avengers Endgame. And then they came over and they picked up what fucking X-Men? They picked up Uncanny Avengers. They saw Avengers and they came home and they picked up Rick Remender's Uncanny Avengers. Oh, dear. Right. So as somebody who has that sort of disconnect where you're not as familiar with the film's material, how did this transition to a magical world, the introduction of more magical family, the introduction of the rings, how did that play out for you as a reader? They've been hinting at it for a while, so I just took it in stride. I know that there's other dimensions, so I have no problem with it. I'm here for it. I want to see what's going on with Talo. I want to learn more about the writers. I don't really have an issue with it. I'm actually really glad that we're incorporating a lot of the MCU into Shang-Chi. I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that I think that they streamlined him a bit more in the MCU. And I I look forward to see, because I'm not actually all that familiar with him. So for me, as a new reader of the book, it's just nice to see something familiar, things that I could point out and be like, ooh, that. I also really love that there's a divergence from it as well. So you made it their own and the 616 is making it work for them as well but still it's intertwining the stories so new readers can pick it up and do the same as me they can point it out and they could be like oh my gosh the, the keelans and the talao and you know it's it's just really exciting and one of the things i think is really interesting about this comic and i'm just going to put it all on the line here shung chi is so brutally hot in this issue oh, i i like i i'm yes. dehydrated looking at him and i cannot handle how beautifully Marcus Toe took uh, an existing title and made it his own. I feel like every character is still on model, but they sort of sing in a new way. And one of the things I loved the most about that was specifically, it kind of did feel like a change of genre. And I don't mean this, like, perhaps it could be read negatively, but I certainly don't mean it that way. It's as if the previous issue's art really felt like I was looking at the cover of a Harry Potter book. And now these issues feel a little bit more like I'm watching a Harry Potter movie. It feels brighter, warmer, less storybook, less formal with mythology and painterly style, and a more engaged idea of action and maybe a bit more focus on traditional attractive aesthetics. How do you guys feel about the shift in art? It does feel dynamic and story changing. For me, one of the things I was noticing is when I went back to sort of reference some of the previous stories the art for the previous issues really complements the sort of intimacy and secrecy of Shang-Chi getting to know his family and coming to understand the legacy that his father has left him. There's a lot of deception going on. There's a lot of we don't know who is actually on his side. There's a lot of double crossing. And, you know, the issues, especially the last couple issues where um, they're at their base and engaging with the villains and you don't quite know what's going to happen. There's a very dark aesthetic. There's a very hidden in the shadows thing going on and it works really well for that. This, in thinking about this as, you know, a new story and a transition to the next step for Shang-Chi, we get very literally them out in large open spaces and confronting their place in a larger world, in a world that is now even getting extra dimensional. So Toe's art really speaks 
close to that shift in where we're going to see the characters and what we're going to see them doing. The the siblings seem to be getting stronger and stronger as a unit. And this really spoke to that change from sort of secrecy and trying to figure each other out and who's double crossing who to we are out on an adventure in the world. And the thing for me that really tied the whole thing together was the lettering, which it's the same letterer and that amazing use of sound and the way that that still ties things together for the action moments. Other gentlemen, the art change. This change in style gives the book more of a chance to show action. This the, Things just feel more alive, I guess. Just the way that clothing feels like it's flittering in the wind and just the, the way that the characters move between panels. It, I'm enjoying it a lot. I think it's a great change for the way that this book... I really enjoyed uh, what you said about the art in the previous arc because it was very storybook, which I think worked for that so well. I think it was so beautiful. Everything looked so beautifully painted. I do think that this was such a seamless transition because it just instantly worked from the first page. Marcus Toe's art and just it, it all comes together. He does beautiful work with, with the creatures and, and the characters. He makes them look beautiful and still they they look different, which I really enjoy. I just really loved it. But you know, we all we already know how Marcus Toe, you know, what his skill level is. He was on Excalibur and his work on that book was stunning, and it's equally stunning here. And I think there's really something something about the element of, as TK pointed out, the exquisite lettering and the elevating element of the colors by Sunny Go. I think something I associate with Sunny Go is very frequently these kind of like wild trippy books like X-Corp, which better or for worse, you'll never forget that fucking art. And I believe that it was, I say this a lot lately, but man, that run was a moment in time, right? (laughs) And when I say that phrase, man, that run was a moment in time. I'm trying to say like that happened then that is where that existed and it made sense in that context and people really reacted maybe they loved it maybe they hated it they really reacted and I feel very much the same about talking at times about some of the misfires of the Krakoan era I bring those up sort of as a point of comparison Shang-Chi does not feel like a moment in time Shang-Chi feels a little bit more like a strange academy perhaps where it feels like a title that is meant to to exist in its perfect vacuum at all times. If I do have one frustration about this issue, I feel like we spent the better part of 12 issues interacting with a bigger picture of the Marvel Universe and a greater understanding of the pieces that work the Shang-Chi cog machine. And it feels as though in a lot of ways, we did lose much of that inner working. Something that Alyssa Wong said when she was on our show, name dropping, uh, you know, flip my hair. And I think (laughs) when she said that for her, Shang-Chi is the goodest boy and he is the most lawful good you can be and I agree part of that being illustrated so well is by constantly confronting Shang-Chi with other people now frequently it's been shown as how does Shang-Chi measure his good in the face of others doubting his good here no one is doubting Shang-Chi's good but rather the quality of his self-determination is being tested Kyle I know something that you really like in a hero is a commitment to that follow through like the good guy is the good guy Mm -hmm. and that's something that i also really react to 
and really respond to. You know, I love the whole Cap tightens it and, you know, he gets back up to fight more Thanos. You know, that's a thing. How does it feel seeing Shang-Chi's quality of character constantly tested in so many different ways? If you remember earlier in the series, I got increasingly frustrated with him always having his character questions. We're at the point now where I'm glad that things are kind of working towards us not having to have to deal with that over and over again. I like that he's dealing with his own internal family issues so that we're not seeing all these other Marvel characters going, oh, you used to be good, but you're now running with this bad group, so you have to be bad. You just want to be like, all of you have been Thunderbolts. Eat a dick. Like, guys, you've all been on teams with the word dark or the word superior or... (laughs) And and let's face it, half of you have been X-Men at some point and nobody likes the X-Men except fans. And even then, (laughs) don't go on Reddit. So I'm very with you in the, you know, there really is a, a tiredness to testing him with other heroes. So I am pretty excited for this transition. How do you feel about the idea of the introduction of his family? I mean, it's always been one of the most interesting parts of the book as a whole. And we've often gotten a sense of it's that angel season five trope of like the most lawful good person has to go into the belly of the beast and try and reform things and is constantly tested, not in terms of how others question his goodness, but how he himself questions the best ways to move forward and strengthen connections among the team while also being confronted with, you know, the the lesser of two evils and what's the best thing to do in a bad situation. His family often represents further challenges in that notion for him. And the thing that it has been really exciting to see is how, in spite of that, he manages to sort of get them working on his goals and on his side and being better people, no longer so sort of neutral to sometimes evil in how they go about things. And the fact that we have the sibling with the most conflict, his sister, still not in the book and constantly hinted at showing up makes it really exciting to continue reading this book and finally get to the point that I know is coming where I think it even might be next issue where all five siblings are together on the page and trying to figure out like are we actually a family or are we just Zheng Zhu's legacy sort of rotted to its core all I can think is going together five weapons and never two part it's like all I can hear right I now mean Shang-Chi the musical would really I think you know it'd kill it I think it should Rick roll us all it would be tremendous oh god I would love that I'm always down for a good Rick roll I think okay so TK that was a really good answer mine is a lot less introspective <laughs> um, I have been really obsessed with him locating and reuniting with all of his siblings I love that they each have some kind of archetype I actually liken something like this to like Hogwarts houses where like there's a flavor for everybody and you can check off which box you think you are so of course we all know that I love sister staff and I think that there's somebody for everyone out of all of his siblings somebody to relate to somebody to love and cheer for and I also really love that they are a unit and even though there's only three of them right now they do empower each other and we are seeing them succeed and be stronger for it and I look forward to when they are all reunited and they're even stronger then so I've 
been really down for this storyline. Um, and I'm re- excited to see, like, you know, future family members that, you know, don't know that they're family members because their father was alive for thousands of years. I think it's really funny that this one ancestor thinks that he's going to be some great villain. But then again, he does live in 616 and anything is possible there. So who knows? <laughs> I am enjoying seeing Esme question, but still trust Shang-Chi because it, it feels natural. She's She saw his betrayal of Deadly Saber and she didn't quite understand it. So having her wrestle with trusting Shang-Chi's vision and dealing with that betrayal, it's it's been a great experience. It feels different from the other Marvel superheroes. I just need to see more time with the other siblings. That was a huge thing for me. And it's sort of like, okay, it's something we've noticed on more than one occasion. For whatever reason, Alyssa Wong's stories don't tend to include the siblings. So that means the only place we've been getting them properly is this title, which occasionally does not have room for everybody. It's a busy book. So I find myself really excited that I felt this issue, like we did see several of the siblings work together in a really exquisite way. And speaking of working together exquisitely, I would like to ask Brother Saber out on a date and then back to my place and then stroke his pretty, pretty hair. Because... You will be fighting me for that opportunity. Yeah, I'll fine. Let's do it. Like he... I love him <laughs> so much. It was amazing how how dynamically powerful he looked on the page for how little he appeared. Yeah, And I really loved what little inclusion we got of him because it was one of those examples of where you can do a lot to tell very little story very easily if you utilize page space and you think about narrative flow. I feel like I got a sense of who Brother Saber was and he is maybe the character I am the most excited to get to know better. He's in a really precarious position where I feel like he could either wind up like new Shang-Chi nemesis under the wrong next writer or, you know, he can stay our goodest boy's goodest boy. How do you guys feel about the role Brother Saber is playing in the overall narrative and just how beautiful he looked? He very pretty. (laughs) (laughs) He was very pretty. Agreed. But I'm glad that he's there as kind of a counterbalance, I guess, would be what I'm trying to say. I'm looking forward to seeing what he does next. It's hard for me to judge exactly right now, because uh, I'm I'm just not sure which way he's going to go. I have all of the hope in the world that he is going to rejoin his siblings, that they are going to, I don't know, maybe clear his name or break him out. I don't know. But I really do love that he does represent some what of an opposing force to Shang-Chi and that's not necessarily a bad thing that could be used very well you know in story and as a positive for Shang-Chi's character and his relationship with all of his siblings including Takeshi and I I keep getting distracted by the really amazing last image of him with that arm just in the frame because that is so spectacular yeah for me you know Brother Saber represents that more Moral gray area that Shang-Chi has to deal with so often as the leader of the Five Weapons Society now. He, you know, Stephen, I think you you called it a betrayal. And in a lot of ways, it really was because their family and he ratted out one of his siblings. On the other hand, his sibling did something really wrong. And Shang-Chi is trying to be a force for good and trying to be honest and above board with this operation that was so clouded and villainy and 
secrecy under his father. So to see him dealing with the consequences of that is really important. But for me, the hope is that his family will come to understand what he's trying to do and that they have had so many influences that are opposed to Shang-Chi's mission in their life that it's going to take a while to for everybody to sort of deprogram and get on his side. I do want to see them together and I want to believe that Brother Saber can understand that what happened was what had to happen because of the choices that he made. But I can also, you know, I can see the road to villainy. We have another sibling that we know is really on that path. So I can see kind of a three versus two situation happening. But some of the best moments in the book as a whole were Takeshi's love for Shang-Chi and the sort of, you know, bromance that they were having. It was funny and fun and I would really be happy to see more of it. But you really can see the opportunity for narrative conflict and not being able to just get there immediately. I've made a comparison on this show to the earlier works of Marvel's attempt to restart the martial arts corner of the street level hero world. And the big focus had been on Iron Fist. It is of note that while Shang-Chi has the houses, Iron Fist had the capital cities and the immortal weapons. And each one had a personality. And each one had a look. And each one had an ability. And there is very clearly an attempt to sort of right those wrongs. And in us discussing that we feel as though Commander Hammer doesn't show up nearly as much as she could. And, you know, Brother Saber is off the table. So we have Sister Dagger and Sister Staff and, of course, Shang-Chi. When it was the Immortal Weapons, there were fucking eight of them. And that's too goddamned many. I think the thing that works best for me here is the refocusing and relimiting of some of the number of siblings. While I do very much enjoy my time with the Immortal Weapons, it is maybe difficult to occasionally keep all of the details of Bride of Nine Spiders different from all of the details of Tiger's Beautiful Daughter. Perhaps you may confuse things about Fat Cobra with things about Dog Brother Number 2 with things about Prince of Orphans. It is occasionally hard for me to remember that the Steel Serpent isn't just a really skinny Iron Fist. So <laughs> I want to at least give the team a little bit of credit for the refocusing down to five, if for no other reason, five is a magic number of power so frequently throughout the Avengers and the X-Men, and it feels a little more like we could see some sort of five-man team come together in a reasonable way. Myself, I would love more than anything to get a Houses miniseries whenever Shang-Chi needs to go on a break. Get in some of the tremendous writers who have worked so beautifully in crafting narratives in and out of this story, and have them tell some stories about the siblings, or perhaps some of the previous people to hold those offices. There's a lot to be mined here, and that's one of the things I'm most excited about. Because Shang-Chi is the beginning of new history, there's history to be found where there wasn't before. And that's perhaps what I'm the most excited about. What of the multitude of ideas that the Shang-Chi title has introduced from the world of Talo to the amazingness of those motherfucking rings to the many people who have held the houses before, what element of the Shang-Chi lore would you be most interested in seeing explored in some capacity outside of the confines of the regular title? I definitely want more information on the other houses. House! Yeah, yeah, definitely. Kyle will protect this house! <laughs> 
Well, because Shang-Chi, it's mostly focused on his house with the assistance of the the champions of the other houses. So being able to see what goes on when those champions are with their houses, I'd definitely be interested in, in seeing that kind of storyline. Yeah, I'm with Kyle. I really want to see them in charge of their own division, see how they handle their leadership while also working in tandem with Shang-Chi. That's my biggest intrigue as well. Also, I do love the rings, but even though they were on the cover, we didn't actually get them, and I'm really hoping he still gets uh he still gets those rings. What a cock ring tease. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, I should stop getting excited about what shows up on the covers. I was really excited about seeing them appear, and then they didn't, and I got sad. Yes, I completely agree. I also have uh, an observation about the next cover coming up that I, I'm partially confused about, and maybe somebody can illuminate it for me. I think for me, everything that you guys have said would be amazing. So rather than tread on that, which I think would be the thing that makes the most sense to see in the immediate future, I would really like to see Sister Saf Jilan interact with the mutants a little bit yes. and give us sort of an understanding of how the Five Weapon Society can interact. We've seen how they interact with the Avengers, and that's clearly going to be a very complicated relationship. The mutants are having a pretty complicated relationship with all of humanity, including the Avengers. I think her acting as a bridge between Krakoa and Shang-Chi's universe could be a really interesting way to show some solidarity amongst the different corners of the Marvel Universe when we know that we're always going to have a lot of conflict. We know that there's a big event coming up, Avengers, X-Men, Eternals. It would be really interesting to see Krakoa make a connection with another group that sort of understands what it's like to be living in moral ambiguity under the eye of the perfect Avengers who never do anything wrong and are always worried about what everybody else is doing. Well, now I really need Shang-Chi to join that event and it becomes Sax. <laughs> <laughs> So, oh, I like that more. <laughs> Stephen, I believe you had a question about the cover of Shang-Chi number 10. Yes. We know about the five siblings specifically. Do we know about more? Because I see a potential for a sibling bow and a sibling sword as well. I mean, I also just assume there might be other fighters who are also descendants of Talo. So I wonder if it's like in the film when they were like, hey, Aquafina, get good at a bow and arrow. And she was like, okay, let me go apologize on Twitter. Delete. <laughs> Yeah, because like I, I'm so down for just more siblings. I mean, the dude was alive, as I said earlier, for thousands of years. It would be really great if there were more, more siblings and more fun weapon uh, choices. But statistically, I... he probably stuck it in. <laughs> yeah, he probably <laughs> stuck it in. I, I was just so curious because it was, it was really exciting to me to see a like a bow like literally floating there around him with the potential of just more family for him to connect to. But I wasn't sure if this was a rings on the cover kind of situation at the same time. You know, it might just be a artistic choice to hint at the fact that this is a very expansive opportunity for further story, for the surprise sixth sibling that shows up later. We're going to be mining Zheng Zhu's legacy and what that means for this family for a long time. And I think it makes sense just to remind readers that these are possibilities so that when they show up, people aren't going, well, 
Well, it's the Five Weapon Society. I can't possibly understand how there would be anybody else. Yeah, no head scratching or anything. I get that. Mm. That makes sense. The only thing that I can think of is that the bow is representative of the Keelan Riders because they do fight with bow and arrow. Oh yeah, you're absolutely right about that. His mother specifically fought with a bow and arrow, I think. I could be wrong yeah. about that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, that's a good point. Because there, there was also a sword like kind of off on the thing, so I was like, ooh, more weapons, more siblings. Yeah more family i'm about it 